I am a big fan of um, preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, and I always have been until I got to this chapter. Um, well, you're going to find in this chapter some repetition. We've already talked about, to some extent, uh, the statue, the dream of Nebuchadnezzar and the statue of chapter 2 of the book of Daniel. And on that statue was the kingdom of bronze. And so that, of course, referring to, we talked briefly about the kingdom of the empire, the Greek empire. Then in Daniel chapter 7, we had, uh, that was a chapter of the different beasts. And we had the leopard beast, which, of course, is the Greek empire. Then in chapter 8, we had the male goat attacking the ram with two horns. And we determined that that male goat was, well, the kingdom of Greece and Alexander the Great. We come to chapter 11, and what we have here is an unfolding of that Greek empire and then its effect upon the world and its change of the culture. Admittedly, this chapter is just a lot of history. There isn't anything in here that is going to be necessarily your uh, epiphany and your rah-rah moment. I doubt very seriously that anybody is going to get a life verse out of this chapter. I've never heard anybody refer to this chapter as their favorite chapter of the Bible. Maybe among us, the few prophecy nuts, uh, maybe this is their thing. But here is the, the thing that, here's the issue that I always come back to. God has, for whatever reason, decided that this chapter is important. And therefore, it must be preached, uh, regardless of the fact that 99.7% of the pastors in America avoid it like the plague. It must still be preached. Daniel would have been in Babylon from about 605 B.C. until his death in 535 B.C. In this chapter, he's going to give a description of world events. Some of these events span from 538 B.C. when he would still be living until about 200 B.C., long after he was dead. Now, that leaves us with a conundrum. How in the world did this man, who would have died in 535 B.C., how in the world did he describe the events that will be unfolding, and especially those of Alexander the Great in 331 B.C.? Hmm. Well, here is the solution that most people come up with. Daniel could not have written about these events in advance. Therefore, someone current with the events, merely reporting on the events as they saw them, would have written it down, and in order to give their writing credibility, they would have assigned the name Daniel to it. Now, there's a problem with taking this stance. And here's the problem with that philosophy or that mindset about the book of Daniel. We know from archaeology that Daniel was already an important book in the Qumran community in the 200s. That means it had to be written before then. And so even if Daniel was written by someone else in, let's say, the 300s, how in the world did he prophesy about the events of Rome that came after? 
Furthermore, how would he have had the intricate knowledge of the Babylonian Empire and the dreams of Nebuchadnezzar and the words of Nebuchadnezzar that have not been recorded anywhere else? Either way, Daniel leaves us with this issue. Either this is truly indeed prophecy or we just have to ignore history. Those are just the only two options. You have to walk away and close this book up and say, I'm just not going to go there because the evidence is too great that this truly is prophecy, so therefore I'm going to ignore it and continue in my stubbornness to reject the Word of God. This sermon contains a lot of history, but I want you to know this, that history is simply a recording of God's work in human events. That's what history is. Some of you, uh, you know, I, I used to teach history, and here's, here's the way day one went in class with kids. Why do we got to study this? As I tell Julie, you know, kids are addicted to stupid pet tricks on skateboards on YouTube now. That's what they think is important. Why do we got to learn this? What, what good is this? And you know what? Adults say the same thing. But as a Christian, that should not be your approach to history. Or to world events. Or to the news. Because here's what you know. The world is not out of control. Neither is your life. God is directing the events of this world in the direction that he determines that they will go. In other words, we need to grasp this passage of scripture Remember this, this is what God says in Ephesians 1.11, that he works, how many things? All things according to the counsel of his will. All things. Not just the things that we can comfortably assign to God, but all things. The events of your life, how many of them are according to the counsel of God's will? All things. Now, we sometimes talk about the will of God in various ways. We talk about us committing a sin is not the desire of God. It's not the will of God. And on a moral level, that's absolutely true. But then we begin to assign the will of God to every event that's distasteful to us or the violent and awful events that humans persist in that somehow these humans are overriding the will of God in that moment. That would be anti-scriptural because God works how many things? All things according to the counsel of his will. Sometimes we like to think that humans can on their own by mere decision of their free will override the will of God and that God somehow is in heaven roaming around trying to figure out how to outmaneuver humans. That's not how it works, y'all. This is an awful thing to think of. But even with war, it's according to the counsel of his will. Why? Because he's bringing this world to its proper conclusion. Nothing is independent of the divine will. And listen to this part that will make you uncomfortable. 
He energizes his creatures to certain specific acts. All things, all acts, not just the ones we like, all acts. If you lean way on the other side of all of this, then you must at least admit this much. That God is the one who sustains life in a person. And if that person does evil and God continues to sustain his life, the end result is the same. God is uncomfortably close to some events that we don't like to think about. Well then, is man not responsible for his sin? Of course he is. But all God has to do is energize the impulse of a sinful man to get the sinful man to do that which is awful thing, but yet in the end brings about what God intended for world history. We're secondary causes. We're always responsible. Listen, if we were sinless, there's nothing that could create an impulse in us to sin. If we were not depraved, if we did not believe in total depravity, that our twistedness touches everything that we do. It's not that everything that we do is as awful as it could be, but it does mean that everything we do is corrupted by our sinfulness. That's total depravity. By the way, I I do sometimes love to pick at certain individuals in our congregation, not those of you that are kind and caring, but just some of the men that I like to antagonize. And so yesterday... Uh, we, uh, staff and deacons and our, our wives, we uh, met at Shelley and Bob's and we had dinner. And my wife just, I think as an experiment, decided to wear her tulip girl shirt. And there are a couple of my deacons that are really strong into theology and their wives did not know tulip. So, Chad... You're going to have to catechize, bro. Yes, amen. So that's an inside joke, so I'm sorry, but Chad will get me back later. Let's talk about this, though. Uh, History, it's not a recording of what people have done on their own. It's a recording of what God does through people. And so now we're we're going to have to jump into this, and, and let's do our best But I I want to just point out, first of all, the triumph, and I'll make this as painless as possible, the triumph of the Greek Empire. Because this will go somewhere, but just hang with me for the details. If you lose consciousness, we have some smelling salts, and we'll bring you back, and and you can keep going with us. The triumph of the Greek Empire. Now look at verses 2 through 4 of chapter 11 of Daniel. And I'm not even going to do this whole chapter. There's too much of it. We'll stop at 21. I think that's all we can endure today. Okay? So look at this. And now the, the, this angel says, I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia. Now remember, Darius the Mede is, is king now. In Persia. And a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, 
His kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. Now that may feel like that's, you know, coded language, but if you know a little bit about history, this prophecy about what will happen is dead on. Now, he, we, what we have in verse 2 is this fourth king from Persia. This is Xerxes. We know that by history. This is Xerxes. And it says that he's going to be richer and stronger. And he's going to stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Here's what we know from history. Xerxes had an army of 900,000 troops. He decided that he's going to take over Greece. This is the, the largest army ever amassed in the history of humanity. We know that Greece did not have that kind of army. As a matter of fact, Greece was divided into city-states. You had the Athenians and, and, and you had the men of Troy. You remember those some of that in history. And what we have here is that he seeks to invade Greece, but due to the, the, the military superiority of the Spartans and the Athenians... They, with a, a lot fewer troops, were able to hold Xerxes off in this uh, Greco-Persian war. And finally, it comes to an end in 479 B.C. with Xerxes being humiliated by being unable to take it over. So Greece holds him off again, even with all of his vast wealth. What happens to him is, militarily, his strategy was wrong in this sense. He had too many troops. And he was not able to have, you know what he had? He had supply chain issues. And he couldn't feed them all. And trying to move all of them, he would have been a lot better off with fewer troops. But by the time he strings all of that stuff out, all the way across to Greece and across the water and moving all these troops, it, it, it depletes all of his resources. And so Greece is able, with the combination of some of their city-states, the people from, from the different areas of Greece, are able to hold him off in that mountainous area and keep him from taking it over. Some time goes by, and what you have in verses 3 and 4 is the subjugation of the world by Alexander the Great. Now Persia is no longer the threat that it used to be. And what we see in verses 3 and 4, a mighty king shall arise. This is Alexander the Great. He's going to rule with great dominion, do as he wills. But here's the thing. As soon as he has arisen, that is, he rules a short period of time. And many of you know that he conquered the known world in his 30s and died. He ruled for a very short period of time. But he conquered the world in just minutes almost. Ferocious fighter, fast advancing. And But as soon as he's risen, his kingdom is going to be broken. Then it's going to be divided to the four winds of heaven. What does he mean by that? What is Daniel saying here? That his, the, Alexander the Great's Greek empire is going to be divided into four parts. It's going to be split up. But he goes on to say, not to his posterity. We know from history that this is the truth. It was not his posterity because as soon as Alexander the Great dies, they kill his mother, his wife, and his sons. So he has no heirs left. 
four generals arise from out of Alexander's army and the kingdom is divided among those four generals. What does all of this mean? God is telling Israel that these things are going to happen. Do you know why? Alexander the Great was no friend of the Jews. He came into Judea with the intention of total annihilation of the Jewish people. Have you ever heard something like that before? But here's what we know from this. His violence, the awful things that he was doing, his conquest of the world, that God was behind all this. How do we know that? Because God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And so he's working these things out. This means that he is the one who energized Alexander the Great. He's the one who ensured that Alexander the Great would perform certain specific actions. He's the one who guided his strategy. He's the one who enabled and prompted him. How do we know this? The scripture says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Here's something that helps us with perspective. We click on the news. And whether you watch CNN or Fox News, it really doesn't matter. You turn it on, and their job on the news is to do what? To stir you up so you'll turn on again later and see if there's anything else going on. So, whichever one you do. And so then you're watching, and you may think for a moment, does our president have a pulse? And then you think to yourself, can he think? Economics 101, Joe. And so you, you start, but here's, here's what you have to settle. That whatever decision that he's making, it's according to the counsel of God's will. Have you ever thought that maybe at this time in history, that God is actually using some of the people in power to chastise the American people? Do you think that our spiritual condition is better than it was 50 years ago? Do you think God cares about the Dow Jones? Do you think God cares about the price of gasoline? Well, he does a little bit because I talked to him about it. But you do, do, this is not God's major issue here. Do, do you understand that some of the pain that you have to endure, where can he speak to Americans? Not through their heart, but through the wallet. And have you ever thought, we think that we're completely invincible, that maybe that's part of what COVID was about, to remind us that we're not. And that there is a God in heaven who is in control of all things, and we're not that person. So there should be some sense in which, after you get over, i I, 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 I got to apologize to my wife, we were watching the news the other day and I gave her like a 20 minute lecture on economics and I'm just so sorry honey. And so anyway, but you know, I, they were, I'm watching these people make these decisions, I'm like, what is wrong with you? But you know, but again, at some point I have to pull back and go, but God, but God, 
works all things according to the counsel of his will. And whether I like the way he's bringing things about or not is just above my pay grade. That's not my place to judge him for how he brings it about. But he is marching this world forward toward the end of all things in which every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The nations will submit to Christ and God will ensure that it takes place. I want you to see next the turmoil in the Greek Empire. Now Alexander the Great dies and so now begins our history lesson even in earnest. Let me read verses 5 through 19. I guess we'll do it that way. And then, um, you know, we'll, we'll see what, what we can do. Um, those of you that are better historians, you can come and correct me later. And I'll, I'll try to get it right next time. But this is the best I can do. Then the king of the south. Okay, so throughout, throughout this, when you're thinking south, you have to think orientation according to, to the, the nation of Israel being like the center point. What's south and what's north of that, right? So if you're trying to think through this, so what is south? Well, this would be Egypt. Now remember, here's what's weird that's going on. There is a a Greek former general who is now the king, a Greek man who's king over Egypt. So in each one of these situations, you have non-Greek people being ruled by a Greek emperor. So the king of the south is, there's a, a king, a Greek king, he's over Egypt at this time. He shall be strong, but one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule, and his authority shall be a great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance, and the daughter of the king of the south shall come to the king of the north to make an agreement. But she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure, but she shall be given up, and her attendants and her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times. And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place. He shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. He shall also carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north. Then the latter, the king of the north, shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. If nothing else you get from this, there's a lot of back and forth battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. The king of the south, this is Egypt. The king of the north, this would be Syria. Syria being north of of Israel, right? So just think of the traffic back and forth through Israel now. Back and forth, these armies are marching, just, you know, mutilating, burning, you know, scorched earth policy every time they go through Judea. His son shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces, which shall keep coming and overflow and pass through, and again shall carry the war as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south, moved with rage, shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, his heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come on with a great army and abundant supplies. In those times many shall rise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision 
but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city. And the forces of the south shall not stand or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. But he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him. And he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. And he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom. But it shall not stand or be to his advantage. Afterward he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them. But a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back toward the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Okay, so that's a lot. And it's all woven together, so let me just do the best I can and and we'll go with this. If if you are into history at all, you've read about this at all, probably some of our uh, high school students remember some of this. The Egyptian, the the king of the south in Egypt, it's, it's the Ptolemaic, it's the Ptolemies. That group of people. So what you have first is Ptolemy the first. And the king of the north is the Seleucus empire. So you have Seleucus the first in verse 5. Now here's what's interesting about this prophecy. The Ptolemy the first is strong. But Seleucus who was one of the four generals. He was supposed to get the empire of Syria of the north. But somebody else beats him to it. So he comes and serves under Ptolemy I for a period of time. So that's why he's called one of his princes. But he's going to arise and be stronger because he will go from there and take over the Syrian empire. So Seleucus I will be over the, the northern kingdom. And so now this man who used to serve under the king of the south, now he's coming and waging war all the time against the guy he used to work for. One of his commanders, and this is Seleucus Nicator. And for a while he is ruling as king and then he turns against Ptolemy Soter. Next in line in verse 6 though, something happens. says, after some years. So some years after that, there's an alliance that's reached. But this is not the first two guys. They're already gone. It's the son of Ptolemy I. And we'll call him Ptolemy II. How about that? And his real name is Ptolemy Philadelphus. Remember, these guys are Greek leaders. And what they're doing in the meantime is that they are enculturating the nation that they're leading. They're turning it into a, a nation of Greek culture. And so in Egypt, the, the language of the Egyptians is going to be minimized and people are going to speak Greek. And then also in Syria, the language is going to be minimized and the culture minimized. And it's going to be a Greek culture with Greek gods and Greek language. And so through these battles, what's happening is the, the Greek culture is being spread all over the world. And it's not just people coming in contact with it. They are having their kids are growing up in school speaking Greek now and learning the Greek language. And so Ptolemy II now is against Seleucus II, or they call him Antiochus. And Antiochus II calls himself Antiochus Theos. Do you know what Theos is in Greek, right? God. You study theology, right? It's God, a study of God. So it's Theos. He he calls himself Antiochus the God. And in verse 6, 
what a mess we have here. This this is a mess. Here's what happens. They decide to make an alliance. Ptolemy II and Antiochus II, they're going to make an alliance. And so the daughter of the king of the south is going to be given to the king of the north to make an agreement. So Ptolemy II is going to give his daughter, Berenice, to Antiochus II. And the issue, the, the plan here is that Antiochus II, the king of the north, is going to have a son with Ptolemy II's daughter. And then that kid, that son, is the one who will arise and take over the kingdom of the north. And so now we have a permanent alliance because it's a family affair, right? So it's a smart plan. The problem is Antiochus II is already married. And Lucite doesn't like this new arrangement. She has a son as well already. And so what happens is that she decides she's going to poison Berenice and her son. And she does. And somehow along the way, Antiochus II mysteriously dies. And we don't know all the intricacies of that, but we have some idea of how that came about. So now she, the former wife of Antiochus II, she's going to rule on the throne for a period of time until her son is old enough to take over the throne. Now, her son... Uh, what we think about uh, Ptolemy II, Philadelphus, you know, this is a guy that gives his daughter away in marriage to a man that already has a wife, and, you know, it's such a mess. This guy's an awful guy. But here's what God prompts in his heart in the midst of all of this that is good. It is Ptolemy II who commands that the Hebrew Bible be translated into Greek. And many of you know that as the Septuagint. We have that translation of the Old Testament with us today. And so that's what God is doing through this rascal. In this time, Greek is becoming the international language. Why? Remember, all things according to the counsel of his will. He is prompting these awful men to do some horrific things in order that the Greek culture will become prominent because God has willed it to be so. And he is doing that for a particular reason. Well, let's keep going. You're going to get bogged down. So after Ptolemy II, his son, Ptolemy III, who remember was little uh, and his mom really raised him. And so Ptolemy III, um, Ptolemy Eurogetes is his name. And then Antiochus II and Callinicus there in verses 7 through 9. When you see this word, uh, this phrase in verse 7, and from a branch from her roots, one shall rise in his place. Okay, what is, remember now, here's the thing. Ptolemy III is the brother of of uh, Berenice who was killed so he's going to rise now as king and his sister is the one who was assassinated by the people in the north so what do you think he's going to do this has been boiling in him and so now he's the king and so he's going to Seek revenge in 246 B.C. We know this from history. This happens. 
And remember, Daniel's being shown this information. And he's living approximately 300 years before it happens. God is preparing his people. God is showing us two things. One, he's preparing his people because all of this war is going to be raging back and forth through Israel. There's going to be carnage. There's going to be a reduction in the Jewish population. There are going to be times when the Jews are going to wonder, is this ever going to end? And God is making his people aware. And secondly, God is reminding us that providentially he is in control of all of history for his own purposes and for his own will. Next comes Ptolemy the fourth. His name is Ptolemy Philopator, meaning one who loves his father. He sarcastically called that by the Greek population because he actually killed his mom and dad. And he is now against Antiochus III. That's Antiochus in the, in the north. And that's verses 10 through 19. Now, uh, Ptolemy raises an army. They talk about this great army that's going to be raised. So he raises an army of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. I'd want to be one of the elephant drivers. Antiochus raises an army of 62,000, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 element, elephants. Ptolemy wins this thing. But verse 13 says this. The king of the north shall again raise a multitude greater than the first. And after some years. So even though Antiochus in the north is defeated. He goes back. He starts raising an army again. And he waits. And so after some years. He decides. I'm going to invade. I'm going to get these people. So there's another clash and, and, and another war. And so they decide they're going to try to settle this. And so how they determine to settle it is in verse 17. It says, He shall set his face to come with the strength of his whole kingdom. He shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them. And look at this. He shall give him the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, but it shall not stand or be to his advantage. What happens is the king of the north, Antiochus, decides, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give Ptolemy my daughter Cleopatra. She's the, as the Bible says of her, the daughter of women. And so I'm going to give him Cleopatra. And what she's going to do is she's going to work espionage behind the scenes against her husband and against his whole kingdom and help me to know how to finally defeat this rascal once and for all. I mean, they've been carrying this on for 200 years. The problem with Cleopatra was she ended up being faithful and loyal to her husband. And she, she takes her husband's side against her father. And so that's why the scripture says it shall not stand or be to his advantage. And remember this. I mean, emphasize it again. Daniel is giving this information. He's, give, he's being given this by the angel. And he is writing it down a couple of hundred years at least before the events take place. Even to this detail. What's going to happen and how it won't work. Okay. So. We have um, Antiochus III is here. He's going to be attacked by a force from Greece. And the force is supported by the Romans. And they, when we, we see that a commander will arise. Here we have um, it said in verse 19 and so on, 18 and 19. Um, a commander shall put an end to his insolence. That's verse 18. This commander is Asiaticus in 191 BC. He's a Roman. So now the Romans are beginning to creep on the scene. 
And we know that the Roman Empire becomes the dominant empire over the Greek Empire eventually. Antiochus is defeated, but tribute is demanded. They tell Antiochus, look, he's the king of the north. They tell him, look, you have to pay us this much. Well, he doesn't have the money. He's been raising troops all this time and fighting so many wars. He doesn't have any money. So he decides that he's going to raid the temple of Zeus and that he's going to take the funds from there and pay the Roman tribute. And notice in verse 19 that after he goes back to his own land, he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Do you know what happens to him? He's killed by an angry mob when he tries to raid the temple of Zeus. And that was his downfall, and that's where it comes to an end. Think about this. Why would God orchestrate all of this history Why would God even provide the energy and the impulse for people who do some God-awful things to carry out war and carnage and cause this one culture to dominate over all the other cultures of the world? Why would God do that? We don't know all of God's reasons. But we do know this much. God is establishing a language and a culture through which the gospel could spread. Could you imagine Paul's missionary endeavors if Greek would not have been the language of the world? Every time he went to some outpost in Asia Minor, it would be some local language that he'd have to spend five years learning Before he could even speak to them. Talking about a slow spread of the gospel. But because of all of this. What God has orchestrated in history. The world could hear these words. Altos gar. Hegapesen hatheos ton kosmon. Hostaton huyantan managane Edokin, hena, pas hapistuon, ice outon, me, me means not, apoletai, perish, al, eke, zoein. Ionian. May Apolete Al Eke Zoein Ionian. May not perish, but have eternal life. Those are the words of our Savior. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him. Shall not perish. But have eternal life. Had God not orchestrated history. The way he told Daniel he was going to orchestrate it. Had he not carried this out. Exactly as he had determined. According to the counsel of his will. Our Savior would not have been able to speak these words in this language. 
a language which was known virtually in the entire world, the known world at that time. And that the apostles could step upon the shore of any place in the Mediterranean area and Europe and speak these words in Greek and people would understand exactly what they were saying. The New Testament written in Greek would have had no meaning to anyone. Think of this. A minuscule number of people in the world speak Hebrew. And at that time in the world, a minuscule number, as far as the population of the world is concerned, a minuscule number of people spoke Hebrew. If the New Testament would have been written in Hebrew, it had very few readers. But Greek had become the language of the world. And anyone could hear this in the Greek language and know exactly what it meant. It's easy to blame God when things that are apparently awful take place. We tend to look at incidents or events in our lives and in history and we, we tend to evaluate those things in isolation. And we think to ourselves, why in the world would this particular event take place in the world or why would this happen in my life? And we fail to recognize the larger picture of history. The larger picture of history has everything to do not with our comfort, not with us being able to define God exactly how we think we ought to define Him, not being able to tame God and make Him into the God that makes us comfortable. But we have a God that does everything according to the counsel of His will. And he does those things in order to bring about the purpose that he has predetermined for the world. And that's how God works in history. Verses 20 and 21, this gives us a little bit of a cliffhanger for next time. Verse 20, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But when a few days he shall be broken neither in anger nor in battle. And this is the first son of Antiochus dies suddenly for some reason. And then his brother seizes the throne. And his brother, as we have spoken of before, we'll speak of again, is Antiochus Epiphanes. Probably the most wicked ruler that the world has ever seen. And the Bible here is telling us, in his place shall arise, in verse 21, a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given, he shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. And I just have two things to say about him, and we'll say more next time. But he obviously is an imposter. The kingdom was not supposed to go to him. It was supposed to go to his other brother who was in Rome. But this guy seizes the opportunity, and he's a manipulator. He obtains the kingdom not by warfare, but by flattery. So what is God doing? Let's, let's wrap this up, though. So this is history... Your world history class for the day, okay? So you made it. And here's the good news. Everybody made 100 today as well. If you're still breathing, you get an A for the class. So y'all good? Okay, but, but you look at that. You have to look in the Old Testament, especially look at large chunks of Scripture. And really, there's, there are just one or two main things that God is communicating to us. What is God doing here? He gives Daniel this prophecy of what is to come. And what God is doing, he's ending the dominance of the Persian culture. And he's going to 
used, he had used that culture, the Persian culture, to do something. To chasten the Jews. To discipline the Jews. To call out from among the Jews those who were not going to ever follow his ways. But he wanted to do that and he determined to do that and yet keep the Jewish culture alive for a reason. Why? Because through that culture comes the Messiah. And God was not going to allow that culture to be annihilated. And so the Jews are going to go through a long period of history now in which they feel like their very existence is on the brink. I'm not talking about just having a sovereign nation. I'm talking about even existing as an ethnic group. This is genocide. And they're going to think there's not going to be anything of us left. And God is reminding them it's going to look dark. But it's not over. Because I made a a covenant with Abraham that through him would come the Messiah. And that all the nations of the world would be blessed through him. The seed of Abraham. And so you've got to understand this is going to happen. Then secondly, God is doing this. He's establishing a dominant culture that would bring about a language that make the gospel travel much easier, which we've already spoken of, a culture that would give us the Greek New Testament, a culture that would give us the logic of Aristotle, the logic from which we can understand much of the New Testament. God works all things according to the counsel of His will, even energizing and directing evil people to do things in the world that seem just awful. That they have a result that would glorify him and bless the world. Thirdly, God is proving something else. The prophecy of Daniel, that we can verify it exactly in human history. What God is saying to you is, I've given you other prophecies too, people of God. And when we turn to the book of the Revelation, we can be reminded that what God has promised about the end of the world and those prophecies that he promised will come true, we look back to the book of Daniel and say, God has always been faithful to do exactly what he said that he would do. And that there is no possibility that the free will of man and all the plans of the world are ever going to thwart the plan of God. As a matter of fact, God is the one energizing those people and giving the impulse to do what they think is actually against him that he's going to turn around and use for his glory and bring about the end of the world. I think if I were God, some of you would be in trouble. If I were God, I think The first thing I would do is gather all these people that had opposed me the whole time and just say to them, I wasn't joking. The joke's on you. All of these that think they're doing something against God, he laughs, the Bible says in Psalm 2. But here's something else to gain from this that I think is certainly appropriate application these things this, these principles are also true in your own life and in my life awful things that we may wonder why would God not just allow it but why would God do it why would God do this to me let's just say it like it is we're, we're afraid of, of like stepping over the bounds of politeness with God because he might strike us with a lightning bolt. So we say, so why would God permit it? The Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible talks about God doing it. 
And so let's just say it like it is. Why would God do this to me? See, if you have cancer, it's not God allowed it. God did it. Why would God do this to me? And, it, and the answer is the same as it is here. Awful things may bring about the most blessed result in your life. Maybe it's a health issue. Maybe it's a tragedy. Maybe it's some awful thing that you've done to yourself. But all things take place according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 tells us. He has brought you into it. And maybe this, maybe his purpose is to guide you to the Savior who will rescue your soul, your life from the burning hell of perdition. That would be worth any cost that you might have to pay. Any questions that you may not be able to settle about God. Any frustration, bitterness, anger that you might have toward God. It would all be worth it if God did all of those things to actually bring you to himself. For those of us who are followers of Christ, let me just tell you people out here that are not followers of Christ something. Let me just make this very clear. In life, we don't get a free pass because we become Christians. There isn't like uh, Christian cancer, non-Christian cancer. I noticed during COVID, it wasn't like Christian COVID. I was looking for that kind. I thought it like at least be more polite and say amen when it's done, you know. But there's not, it's, it's all the same. We go through the same things. We go through the same difficulties. And Jesus doesn't give us this safeguard from all the world's problems. We don't get that and we don't expect it. Well, some of our people do, but they're wrong. So we don't expect it. So what about for us as Christians? You're trying to obey the Lord. You're trying to follow Him. Next thing you know, the wheels come off. Life just falls apart. Why would, not, not, not why would God allow it? Why did God do this to me? And do you know why for us, dear Christian? That we may seek Him. We have a tendency as Christians to stop seeking Him. We have a tendency as Christians to pull away from Him. We have a tendency as Christians to drift away from Him. It's just in us. It's called total depravity. It's always working against our relationship with the Lord. And sometimes God will do things to us that are so unpleasant and so distasteful that we wonder, does He even love us? But when we get to the end of it all, And we see the kindness of his face. And that he was saving us from destroying ourselves. How can we not praise him for doing all things according to the counsel of his will? Here's one thing I've learned about God. He knows what he's doing and I don't. That's just the bottom line. The question for me and for you is, do we submit to his will? I want to ask you to join me in a word of prayer and uh, let's talk to the Lord for just a moment. And Father, certainly this section of scripture is not one that we go to a Bible conference and want our favorite preacher to preach. It's difficult. It's, some of it seems dry. Some of it seems complicated and we can't keep the kings straight and what year was that and how long ago and all of those things. But Lord, for just a moment, help us to just uh, relax about that part. And for a moment to focus in upon 
this issue that you do all things according to the counsel of your will. Lord, may our hearts as Christians become settled in this world that seems chaotic, pointless, directionless. May our hearts become settled to know that you are doing all things according to the counsel of your will. Father, people here today with vast problems, challenges in life. And Lord, we want to cast blame somewhere else, but really, to, to be honest, we just have to say, Lord, why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to us? Why did you do this? It's something that just not, we just don't want to deal with. But you have done it according to the counsel of your will. And so, Lord, now what? What would you have us to do? Help us as your people to be open now to what you would do in our lives as a result of that. And to trust you that you're making something better out of us than what we could have ever been otherwise. That we become more Christ-like as a result. That we would have never pursued that depth of Christ-likeness had this not come into our lives. And so, God, I, I pray that you would help us to see that. Father, I pray for those here today that are without Christ. They haven't yet started following him. And they look at the world and think of the problems of evil. And how did that happen? And the evil that's in their own life. And how does that happen? And what's God got to do with that? And all kinds of questions that we have. But Lord, I pray that you would help them to see that you have brought them to this point for such a time as this. This is their time. This is you. Through the circumstances and difficulties and trials of life, this is you calling to their heart to tell them to come to Jesus. So, Lord, I pray that you would work that by the power of your Holy Spirit. Work that in hearts that need it today. And, Father, we will be grateful to you forever and ever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.